Hi, I'm Anna Pankhurst from the Coffs Harbour Crime Team and with me is Robin Fraser, the solicitor in charge of the Newcastle Legal Aid Office. Rob, what are we going to talk about today? Thanks, Anna. In this podcast, we'll be talking about preparing and presenting a plea of mitigation in the local court. This talk is aimed at junior practitioners and those who are new to criminal local court advocacy. Can you give everyone a quick overview of the structure of our talk today? I certainly can. In terms of structure, we're going to look at preparation first, followed by the structure of the plea itself, and then we're going to talk about the things to consider after sentence. To practically illustrate what we will be talking about, we'll follow the case of our fictitious client, John Smith, who has pleaded guilty to a high-range PCA and a drive whilst disqualified. And John Smith is a pseudonym for a real client whose papers have been redacted so as to de-identify him. You'll find John Smith's facts, record and sentence assessment report are included in the materials accompanying this podcast. There are also some PowerPoint slides about the main issues that we'll be covering and also a written instructions template, a checklist for sentence instructions and a checklist for preparing sentence submissions. Yes, please read John Smith's facts, record and sentence report before listening any further. And if you haven't, just pause this podcast and go and look at the material. You'll get a lot more out of this talk if you've read it first. It would also be helpful if you have those other documents that Anna mentioned handy as well. I agree. All right, well, we'll begin with the preparation for a local court sentence. Where should you start when preparing a local court sentence, Rob? Well, the first step is to get written, signed instructions from your client. Can you explain to everyone why signed instructions are so important? Well, firstly, your client's signed instructions represent a distillation of all your advice to your client in relation to the matter and of their decision of how they intend to proceed. And secondly, should your client be unhappy with their sentence and try to blame you for it, or worse still, if they try to suggest that you misled them about their options and the probable consequences, your signed instructions will protect you. They're proof that you provided all the necessary advice about your client's rights and options in relation to their court matter. I agree. So what would you include in signed instructions for a local court plea? Well, true it is that many practitioners, I guess, just get their client to sign the first page of the fact sheet under a short spiel about having read the facts and agreeing to them and acknowledging the type of penalty they're likely to receive. This is useful to do before entering a plea if you press for time, and it can suffice if you plead someone up and get them sentenced on the same day, particularly if they're in custody in the cells, say, downstairs. And especially if there's nothing particularly contentious about the facts or the plea. But if a sentence is going to go over for another day, or for a sentence assessment report, or for other subjective material, you really ought to get more detailed signed instructions. And I know this is difficult when your client is in custody, and all the more difficult these days due to COVID limiting our access to our clients. But nevertheless, it would definitely be best practice to have your client provide those written instructions. So firstly, the instructions should list the offences they're pleading to, 
and also note the maximum penalty in relation to each of those offences. So for our fictitious client, Mr Smith, he's pleading to a high range PCA, which has a maximum penalty of 18 months imprisonment and or a fine of up to $3,300 and a drive whilst disqualified, which carries a maximum penalty of six months imprisonment and or a fine of up to $3,300. And in relation to the disqualification periods, it's one to three years for the high range, less with an interlock, and three to six months for the drive whilst disqualified. And I would include those in the written instructions. That's right. Consequential orders, such as licence disqualification, as in this case, should definitely be included, along with the maximum penalties in your written instructions. Now, next... The instructions should refer to the fact sheet, which I would also get your client to sign quite separately, and and for your file only, I might add. And um, it should state that the client accepts that they are the facts on which they'll be sentenced. The written instructions should also make reference to the prosecution evidence that proves their case, and acknowledge the elements of each offence and that there is evidence proving each one. Essentially, your client's saying that they accept they're pleading guilty to each element of the offence and there's evidence against them. Uh, the next thing is that your client should acknowledge their right to plead not guilty and also acknowledge the discounts available for an early plea of guilty. They need to acknowledge the possibility of jail if that's on the cards and they should confirm that their criminal history is also correct and accurate. It's also worth including that they are aware of their right of appeal to the district court. Once they've read and understood it, you get your client to sign and date their instructions, as well as sign and date the facts. That's a lot to cover for a local court plea on a busy list day. It sure is, but it's the proper way to go about it, I think. And if you use a template, like the one we've prepared for this podcast then you just need to fill in the blanks, pretty much, and it'll take no time at all. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Okay, so you've signed your client up. What should you do next? The next thing to do is to systematically record your client's instructions about the circumstances of their offending. You're referring to the what happened, why it happened and why it won't happen again questions, aren't you? Exactly. The best way to do this is to follow a formula or a template similar to the one we've also prepared for this podcast. In doing so, it'll help you not to miss anything, especially if you are flat out and pressed for time. And I'll talk more about these three factors in a moment when we talk about the plea itself. So after getting your client's version and their subjective details, what else should you do? Well, I would then think of what, if any, subjective material I should gather to tender on sentence. Not only go to the trouble of chasing up letters and reports if I'm sure that they are going to be relevant and make a difference in sentence. Can you give everyone an example of what you mean by this? Well, an obvious example would be a letter from a rehab that shows either my client's attendance, his completion of a program, or ha- having been assessed the availability of a bed in the near future. This... this um, This information would be highly relevant if the underlying issue of the offending of my client is their drug or alcohol dependence. And that's because it supports a favourable finding about prospects of rehabilitation. That is, by addressing the drug habit, we're going to reduce the risk of recidivism. I agree. And a letter from a residential rehab 
would also be relevant to the calculation of time served at a ratio of 50%. Absolutely. It's, it's counted as quasi-custody. Now, another example of subjective material I might uh, obtain on sentence would be medical evidence regarding a client's disability or their mental health condition. Such uh, material would be relevant to my client's moral culpability and also to the purposes of sentencing, particularly um, addressing the court on general deterrence. What about character references and letters of apology from your client? Well, in my view, I think character references are of fairly limited utility. I doubt if many magistrates give them much weight at all. I agree. Nevertheless, if you're going to rely on them, and sometimes clients are insistent, make sure you follow the golden rules of references. Number one, the reference must refer to the present offending. It should confirm that the referee has read the actual facts on sentence. Number two... A family member or a de facto partner just cannot be a referee. And number three, your reference should be reasonable, realistic and verifiable. Those first two points are self-explanatory, but what do you mean by the third point, reasonable, realistic and verifiable? Well, the reference has got to have credibility. For example, for our fictitious client, John Smith, if a reference was to say... John made an honest mistake and has never done anything like this before, and clearly John has when we look at his record, then it's actually worse than useless because it is misleading and it potentially demonstrates a degree of dishonesty by Mr Smith in not disclosing his criminal history to the referee. It also suggests a bit of willful blindness on behalf, behalf of the referee. If I got a reference letter like this, like that in this matter... I would explain to Mr Smith why it wasn't in his interest to rely upon the letter as it would hurt him more than help. I agree with that. Okay, what about letters of apology from your client? Okay, so as long as the letter is sincere and consistent with what's in the sentencing assessment report and the submissions that you're going to make on sentence, then it can't hurt. Occasionally, such letters can actually make a really strong impression, especially if the letter demonstrates genuine insight and remorse and is therefore a positive indicator of the client's rehabilitation prospects. Is there anything else that you would do in preparation for your sentence? Well, then, I guess the only other thing is to make sure you have all the relevant documents you need. Firstly, make sure you have an up-to-date conviction report. What about a bail report? Would that do? Well, often the bail report is all you're going to get and it's the only record that the prosecution is going to hand up to the bench. If that be the case, you should um, ask that all the non-conviction entries, like the 25-2 warrants, etc., be redacted before it goes up. Or you could insist on only a conviction report being tendered, but if you do, expect a magistrate on a busy list day to growl at you. Um, with... With our client, Mr Smith, I would certainly be requiring the prosecutor to remove all non-conviction entries, especially given the contents of page four of his bail report, where there's an acquittal for a sexual intercourse with a child under 10 years. I mean, he was acquitted, but you do not want that going before a magistrate. Exactly. Uh, one other thing about that is you don't want to be redacting it at the bar table when the magistrate's waiting to hear your submissions. You'll just annoy them, but you need to get that stuff organised before you go in to do your plea. I agree. Um, 
Now, the other material to think about getting is, of course, the sentencing assessment report before the day of sentence, if the court has ordered one, and that's so you can get your client's instructions on what's contained in that report. And also, any community corrections breach reports, if they're relevant, if, you, if your client's breached a CCO or what have you. Um, and finally, a custodial history from corrective services, if relevant, can also be um, of assistance to the court. And when do you say that a custodial history would be relevant? Well, first I should say its proper name is a conviction, sentences and appeals report, and it can be requested from sentence admin by emailing them. And I think this report is particularly useful if your client's either in custody, they're by refusing custody, they have a balance of parole to serve or they are serving a, a sen another sentence at that time. It will help you calculate any pre-sentence custody. It will help with submissions on start dates and arguments in relation to concurrency and that sort of thing. Custodial histories can also help corroborate any submissions that you might want to make about your client's classification or that your client has been in protection when they've been in custody or that your client has not had any recorded disciplinary incidents or drug use whilst they've been in custody, which can be really helpful when you're making submissions about prospects of rehabilitation and, and risks of reoffending. Absolutely. But you need to ask for the punishment record to be included when you request a report because they're no longer that aspect of the report is no longer automatically included. Yeah, you're right. Um, all right, so... Once you've got all of that in the bag, you've got your written instructions, your subjective instructions and your subjective material, you're ready to do the plea. What's your view, Rob, on written versus oral submissions? I've got a pretty strong view on that. I don't think um, she'd ever do written in submissions in a local court. There's just no time and there's no need. On the rare occasion, a magistrate might ask for submissions about a particular legal issue, but even then you can make those submissions on your feet. I can only think of one time when I handed up written submissions on sentence, and that was for a fairly complex line ball child abuse material matter, when I thought writing it down was the only way I was going to get that particular magistrate to pay proper regard to what I had to say. Okay. So let's return to the what happened, why it happened and why it won't happen again questions and the overall structure of your submissions. Alright, well the first thing I'd recommend is that your sentence submissions should follow a structure and be internally consistent. What you say at the beginning matches with what you say at the end essentially. My second point is those are the three questions that a magistrate wants to know on any sentence. What happened, why it happened, and why it won't happen again. If you can answer those, you've largely done your job. I will routinely tell a client that those are the three questions I have to answer on their behalf. I do exactly the same thing. And if the court has ordered a sentence assessment report, I'll ask the client to think about these three questions and be in a position to explain their answers to the community corrections officer. I find it helps facilitate a client's insight into their offending and better sentence assessment reports. That's an excellent tip. So where does the what happened, why it happened and why it won't happen again fit into the structure of the plea? Well, the first question, the what happened question, concerns the objective circumstances and the context of the offending. Some refer to this as the fancy term, the factual matrix of the offending. 
And the second question, the why it happened, is about objective and subjective factors. Again, the context, but more importantly, the underpinning factors that influenced your client's decisions in this situation. So how would you answer these in relation to our client, John Smith? Well, the most salient points of John's instructions, and this is from the actual file, were that he and his partner went to visit his mother, who had been sick. Um, They drove there. Everyone consumed a lot of alcohol during the course of the day, and then an argument started between John and his brother and mother. Uh, John decided to leave, and he chose to drive rather than to let his partner drive, who was licensed but was also too intoxicated to drive. So that answers the what happened question. The why it happened can be boiled down to John's ongoing problem with alcohol, which is also largely the reason why he is disqualified. He was homeless at the time and living in his car, also attributable, at least in part, to his alcoholism, and it also that points to his high reliance on his car. He instructed that his alcoholism has been a long-standing problem and was exacerbated due to the recent loss of a child and a relationship breakdown that happened before this offence. So it's clear that it's important to clarify that this is an, an explanation for his spending but not an excuse for what is, I think, essentially a garden variety drink driving offence. The one where the guideline judgment squarely applies. Yep, good point. You should make reference to the guideline judgment and also to any other section 21A aggravating and mitigating factors that may be relevant. So let's turn to the third question to answer, why this won't happen again, which is tricky given John's record of similar offences. He's got three prior drink drives and four previous drive whilst disqualified. But But it's worth noting that he's been out of trouble for six years. That's right, and the SAR helps answer this question as well. He now has secure accommodation, is the first thing to pull out of the SAR. Secondly, he has engaged with the MARTA Hospital Substance Misuse Program, and that's a Newcastle Hospital's outpatient rehab program. And thirdly, he's made full admissions and accepts full responsibility. These factors all point towards rehabilitation prospects. I suspect this bloke just needs or needed a leg up to get there and the supervision plan coupled with community service work will provide exactly that. I agree completely. Okay, just going back to the structure of the plea itself, can we talk about that a bit? Yep. So my approach is that submissions have a beginning, a middle and an end. The beginning involves a strong opening statement which might introduce the theme of your submissions, the thing that you're going to hang your hat on. In John's case, it's that he has had a long-standing alcohol problem that has contributed to his homelessness and underpinned his criminal history. But he's been out of trouble for six years and then he recently relapsed and he's now seeking help again. He is the perfect candidate for a supervised community-based order. The beginning is also when you indicate what your ultimate submission will be. And by ultimate submission... You mean how you say the court should sentence your client. So here, a community-based order with supervision. That's right. And you flag that at the beginning? I do. That's my practice. Um, It's an indicator of where I'm heading, which I think the bench generally appreciates. But it also means that everything I subsequently say in my submissions needs to justify. That's that internal consistency I was referring to. So you've done the beginning part of your plea. What about the middle section? 
So the middle is the part where those three questions, what happened, why it happened and why it won't happen again, are answered. And they're answered by reference to the circumstances of the offending, the objective criminality of the offending, the timing of the plea, the subjective background of my client, their criminal history and what efforts, if any, they've taken towards rehabilitation. Okay, let's take them one at a time. Firstly, the objective circumstance and criminality. Can you explain what you'd be driving at here? I think it's important to determine where on the range of criminality this particular offending sits and to be able to justify why you say it sits at, say, below mid-range. It might seem a bit formal for the local court, but I think it's really important to turn your mind to this and to let the magistrate know that you have as well. It ties in with your ultimate submission on penalty. For John Smith, he was well into the high range, had a passenger, but had only driven a short distance. There was nothing otherwise aggravating about the manner of his driving, nor was the offence in the ordinary category of the guideline judgment because, his prior, because, because of his prior record for like offences. Although no um, prior high-range PCAs, I would still say, though, that his offence falls below mid-range of objective seriousness. I agree. Okay, what about the timing of the plea? Well, this is to quantify the discount mainly, which may seem a bit academic if a custodial sentence is not on the card, which is often the case in the local court. But I still think it is an important part of your submissions. The plea of guilty is, of course, also relevant to remorse and therefore insight and prospects of rehabilitation. Yes, it is. And John Smith entered his plea of guilty at the first available opportunity, so he um, is entitled to a discount of 25% on sentence. It's worth noting that the remorse reflected in the plea is also corroborated in what he says in the sentence assessment report about taking full responsibility for his conduct and knowing he did the wrong thing, and etc. Now, what about the subjective information about the client? This is relevant, as I mentioned, to moral culpability, the purposes of sentencing and the prospects of rehabilitation. It may be this is where you might have instructions that give rise to a bug me submission or a Della Rosa submission, for example. And finally, we come to the end of the plea. And the end involves landing the plane on the tarmac, to quote senior public defender Peter Zara as he was then. So this metaphor refers to bringing it all home and also addressing all the purposes of sentencing so that you don't overshoot or undershoot the railway, the runway, I'm sorry, in short, it is what you say is the appropriate disposition and why. And another way of putting that is that it's a logical conclusion to everything you've just said and it is consistent with the guideline judgment, with section 3A and with any other relevant principles on sentence. You mean that it should strike the right balance between all the purposes of sentencing and it is proportionate to the objective criminality of the conduct. Exactly. Now, let's talk about what happens after your client has been sentenced. What if your client gets slotted? If your client's unfortunate enough to um, get slotted from the floor, you really need to speak to your client straight away if you can, both to explain their sentence and to get instructions on filing an appeal and applying for appeals bail if that is appropriate. 
So in saying that, you should not spare your client your frank advice about the fairness or otherwise of the sentence they receive and whether you think they have any prospects of success on the appeal. And what I mean by that is this. If there's no chance in getting up on an appeal, you should give that advice to your client. If your client gets to go home with a community-based order, then still try to speak to them to explain their obligations and any consequential orders, such as financial penalties, disqualification periods, being registered on a child protection register, that they will be subject to. They may also instruct you to lodge an appeal, but they need to be aware of the limited availability of legal aid for non-custodial sentence appeals, and you need to give them that advice. And how did John Smith fare when he was actually sentenced? So this wasn't my matter, and I think he did really well given his record. For the high-range PCA, he got a 12-month community corrections order and a two-year interlock order. And for his drive whilst disqualified, he was sentenced to an intensive corrections order for six months with a condition to pursue rehabilitation. And he was also disqualified for six months on the, drive while, on the yeah, driving whilst disqualified. That's a good result. I hope he does well on his community corrections order. Me too. Now, to wrap this up... Uh, can you tell us your top five things to avoid when doing a local court plea and your top five tips for a successful local court advocacy? All right. Well, first of all, my top five things to avoid are, number one, don't repeat yourself. You only need to say things once in a plea. The magistrate, while they may not look like they're listening to you, they'll still get annoyed if you say things more than once. Number two... Don't rehash the same submission for each and every client you appear for. If you make the same submissions before the same magistrate time after time, expect to piss them off and lose all credibility. You must tailor your submissions to each client's individual case. Number three, don't gild the lily. Don't be unrealistic and make one-sided submissions. They just make you sound naive and they don't assist either your client or the court. Number four, never answer, never avoid answering a question from the bench. And even if you don't know the answer, just say so. And last but not least, number five, is never, ever, ever start a plea with these words. My client is a 34-year-old male, etc., etc. <laughs> this is both a lame and lazy way to represent your client. Now, for my top tips for successful local court advocacy, they would be number one, Maintain your credibility by conceding what you need to and making sensible, logical submissions. Number two, steal your opponent's thunder if you can. And you can usually, uh, you can do this usually by anticipating the criticisms they're going to make of your client and making the appropriate concessions when you need to before they get to their feet. Number three, focus on the law and on legal principles. Don't be a total bleeding heart. Remember that you're a lawyer, not a social worker. Number four, be realistic about the sentence your client is likely to get and advise them accordingly. For example, it should be no surprise to them if they get slotted from the floor because you would have already given them the advice that this was on the cards. And number five, know your bench. Now what I mean by that is, try to get a feel for their views on particular types of offending, for how long they'll tolerate you talking for and for how heavy a hitter they are. And if you haven't appeared before them, ask other practitioners what they're like. They're great tips. Thanks, Anna. So what about you? What do you have to share? 
Well, my number one tip for success would be always be the most prepared person in the room. Know more about your matter than anybody else. This puts you in the best position to assist your clients and the bench. It also allows you to build the trust of the magistrate when, for example, they ask for assistance with a maximum penalty or an aspect of the procedural history of the matter. Over time, this builds a magistrate's trust and confidence in you as a practitioner. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And what would you say is your number one thing to avoid as an advocate? For me, integrity is paramount. Avoid doing anything that would undermine your integrity with the bench, with court staff or with the prosecution. You have a duty to your current client but also to your future clients and your ability to assist future clients will be greatly reduced if you do anything that undermines your professional integrity. That's a really good point, I agree. Right, so we've reached the end of this podcast. Any closing remarks, Rob? Well, I guess I just remind people that things don't always go to plan. Clients can be difficult, magistrates are often difficult, and there's never enough time in the day. So hopefully these checklists, templates and suggestions can help in two respects. Firstly, by providing a structure or a formula, particularly for new advocates to follow, and that can help you to sketch out a plea mitigation when your other eyes might be struggling to find anything positive to say on behalf of your client. And secondly, they may assist you when you have had very limited time to prepare because you'll have a list of your main points to cover and your structure is already there. But they're not meant to be definitive or exhaustive and hopefully they can help. And finally, remember, you are not a magician or a miracle worker. There are limits to what's possible in getting the best result for your client and those limits are usually, hopefully, not of your making. You've got to play the hand you've been dealt. That's right. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. And we hope you found this uh, informative and helpful. Don't forget there's a list of resources and important legislation in the PowerPoint for this talk, as well as links to the templates and checklists we've mentioned and some cheat sheets on sentencing and traffic law. Thanks, everyone. I hope this talk has been helpful and all the best in your local court practices.